0: We can ease ease that way with our study this morning so and as as we know, but I know we've got a few visitor this morning that's uh so you're jumping right into the middle of the introduction of the book that we started months ago, <laughs> but that's a long story and another story um but uh so, so we've kind of worked our way through a, a number of kind of just step back and look at the book from, you know, the, you know, j- just the, the, the book itself, the, the author of the book, um, the object of the book that uh, we discussed, um, you know, at length. But now we're going to shift a little bit into the intention of the book. Right. And and I'll tell you that I have I have toiled this week uh, uh, over this um, because to try to step back and look at this entire epistle, this beautiful epistle that has shaped the lives of so many saints and to begin thinking about uh, what was what was Paul's intention with this letter? Right, and if, if you studied it enough, you could list ten things right that, that can pop out to you. Um, and it helped me this this morning as I got up, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, which was really three o'clock in the morning with this on my mind. And my um, I thought about Second Peter. So I'll read this and then I'll pray and get us started. Um, it's just a beautiful uh, section of Scripture at 2 Peter 1, 19. And I think one of the... We just have to really believe this, right? We have to believe the Scriptures. Um, but But this is one of those texts that that if you don't believe this, you're going to have a real hard time believing the Scriptures, right? 2 Peter 1.19 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you, that would be us, will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's the present reality. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Boy, how as a student, how important is that? Right? And how the lack of that discipline has led to philosophies and doctrines that you just say, how do you get that from the Bible? Is that a different Bible? <laughs> and it's it's right here. That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. And I love that. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just think about that, right? And what hit me this morning is, this is the Apostle Paul. This is that guy named Saul. This is every facet of this man. You can come on in, Jeffrey. (laughs) Every facet of this man. And yet, everything that the Holy Spirit, who knows the end from the beginning, we've talked about this, who knows the end from the beginning, but so much more, has purposed the entirety of human history and then extracted out of that human history precisely what our triune God wanted preserved in the Scripture, which is why the Scriptures are still with us today because there has been a relentless, endless effort to wipe it off the face of the earth along with all the people that, that, that are faithful to that word, right? Right? So when you think about what was Paul's intention when he wrote this book, he had that in his heart. But it was all being worked in him and through him and out of him by the Holy Spirit, who knows the end and all the messy middle from the very beginning. And that's pouring through the Apostle Paul in this letter. And that, that just, just kind of helped me to realize we need to just mine these things out of the scriptures we read. And when we sit down with an epistle, we just need to think about the author, and we need to think about the authors, the writer and the Holy Spirit, uh, and understand that there is most certainly a purpose of that writer— but so much more supremely, there is a purpose of the Holy Spirit who has ordered perfectly every single jot and tittle of that word. That's a phenomenal thought, isn't it? Just You just ponder that. And I would just encourage you as we work our way through this, this, this epistle to, to keep that thought in mind. And this morning as I struggle through trying to to, to to really bring out w- w- what has been on my heart for for the last several weeks in this step back so but first let let's pray, Father, we just come before you so thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ and so thankful for the spirit that through the convicting work has through your electing work, opened our eyes to this blessed Savior and this horrible cross that was due us but is now the most wondrous truth of all, that it is our Lord on that cross, on our behalf, because of your desire to save from humanity a people for yourself. And you have purposed that end and the means by which you would do that perfectly according to your plan, beautifully according to your mercy and your grace. And we just want to praise you for every soul in this room, in this church that gather this morning throughout this world that are yours and just desire to honor you with their hearts and their worship. And so we just lift up these things in thanks and praise to you, our triune God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. So with that, I, I want to just kind of wade us into probably a couple mornings uh, around the, the intent. Uh, thank you, Rick. That was loud for those folks back there, I'm sure. Um, and, I, and I've mentioned this commentary by James Stifler last week. Um, really, really a wonderful commentary, 1897-ish Um uh, and he taught twenty classes on this this epistle um, to theological students, fourteen of which from the original language. So I think he knew the book quite well, right? Um, but what do you realize when you read it was it was like so often it it just progressed as he studied and he dug deep and he began to ponder. Uh, It was a little bit like the architecture we talked about, right? If you took these beautiful bridges or you took this epistle and you just broke it up into a whole bunch of verses or a whole bunch of stones if you're with the bridge and you started picking up the stone, you'd say, well, that's a nice stone. I don't know what it's for, but it's a nice stone. And you could pick up another and you could pick up another and you could pick up another, right? And you may never know that it is this beautiful piece of architecture <laughs> that gets assembled. And then this glorious set stone sets it all into its order and its place and holds it there. And I think that's, that's still a very helpful analogy for me for this book. Because it is full of just beautiful theology. Um, And yet there's an intention in Paul's heart that is being moved along by the Holy Spirit. Um, And and we'll get to see a little bit of what that is this morning and the next. But just to kind of connect us back to last week's study, I want to go back to the salutation of this letter, Romans 1, 1 through 7. And I just want to read it and let it fall on us. But I want to accentuate something that's in here that that runs cover to cover of this epistle. So Romans 1, verse 1 through 7, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. How important is the resurrection? Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, note the we have, received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And that's what I want you to pay attention to, including you, church in Rome, famous all throughout. Your faith has gone out to all the world. This is this church, right? including you who are called to belong to Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. You start to see the repetition here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when you read that introduction, which was very high concentration Paul, what is he communicating in there? What are all the things he's communicating in there? Just take a look at them. What are some of the things that jump out of you about that first seven chapters to these folks in Rome? Whom, by the way, have never met Paul. He
1: starts off by pointing the promises of the Old Testament that revealed to
0: Christ. Precisely. now. Perfect, right? Please say it again.
1: That the promises of the Old
0: Testament have been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Right? This reaches all the way back into all the prophecies of the Old Testament, right? From whom did those oracles come? The Holy Spirit? Israel? Right? Keep that thought in mind, okay? Think about Paul (laughs) with that thought in mind. Think about how he must not have possibly been able to get over the fact that he was the guy that God has very uniquely prepared as Saul, prepared to be a Pharisee, prepared to be all that he was as Saul so that he could be all that he was as Paul. What beautiful work of our Lord right that he would be the, the new covenant means by which this gospel that was held in by Israel and kept for themselves in complete disobedience to God in his clear commandments that he would be the means by which it would go to all the world And if you haven't looked at Paul's missionary journeys, please do. (laughs) The man was absolutely relentless to be faithful to the Lord in this mission, right? But to, to James's point, he had to feel the full weight within himself of the horrendous, betrayal of his Lord and Savior of his beloved people Israel he felt the full weight of it why else would he introduce it that way to a Gentile church this is this is telling this Gentile church that everything that you have come to be is the result of of rising up out of this nation of Israel that God purposed for his sovereign end, right? So you can't be dogmatic about these things, but in Matthew 24, particularly verse three, Jesus foretells the horrendous destruction Of
1: Jerusalem
0: and it is an absolute it's coming and by the time Paul is writing this uh, an awful lot of blood has already been shed has it not he's probably well aware if you look at the historical he's well aware of all the rumblings that are going on throughout Israel in their rejection of the control which Rome has over them, and they want to be free of it, even though they told Jesus they were never slaves to anyone, right? And they're beginning a little bit of guerrilla warfare, and it's already beginning, and what we know historically, it's going to spend the next 12 years leading to that climax of the actual destruction of Jerusalem. Do you think Paul knew that? Absolutely, he knew it. He knew it was coming. And here's where I think it gets perfect. If if your beloved people were facing the imminent judgment of God, like what was coming from them and warned by the Lord Jesus Christ, what would you do? Think about it. I want to take a, a, a wide look. That <laughs> Given that, Paul in this letter is determined to make sure its glorious end to the glory of our triune God is properly understood. Israel's glorious end. Now, with that thought, and if you love to read through a book, read through that book with that thought in mind. Read through this book of Romans with the thought that Paul's great desire is to make sure that we know that God is going to bring about everything that he said, including Israel, including their their destruction in 70 AD, 12 years away from where he's writing this letter and yet so much more into the future. And it'll make Romans 9, 10, and 11, which feel like they come right out of left field, become the absolute centerpiece of this letter. Because I think what he's saying, and we'll see the scriptures, is he's saying, don't forget about my beloved Israel evangelize all the nations of which Israel is one of, and they need it, right? And you'll see that just pour out between this morning and and next morning. But I want to take you to a, a bit of a trigger point, which I found fascinating because it was part of my personal studies that had nothing to do with this study, except it had everything to do with it. John 12, verse 20 through 23. The time is very near for our Lord. It's very likely the second day of the Passion Week. He's just cleared the temple, the entry and the temple clearing. And now you have verse 20, which reads, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were who? Some Greeks. So these men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where you tell them something, and all of a sudden it just seems to trigger this response that you're like, Where in the world did that come from? Look at what Jesus says. Sir, some Greeks have come and they want to see you, basically. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It triggers that thought in his head. And what's interesting about that, if you flip back to John 2, verse 4, and you see this all the way throughout John's gospel in particular, but John 2, 4 is right at the beginning. And Jesus said to her, Woman, and right, we know that affectionately as his mom, <laughs> his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says this, My hour has not yet come. And yet here, at this visitation of these Greeks, it triggers the Lord to say the hour has come. And you've got to stop and measure the magnitude of that statement. Because what Jesus is saying over the course of the entire history of God's redemptive work, something has come right now, and it's marked by Greeks coming To worship the Lord at the very same moment who is about to crucify him. Israel. This is where you have to just realize the Holy Spirit is moving John along to capture these things. Because he knows precisely the end from the beginning and everything in between. And we can't get our head around that. But from John 2, 4, my time has not come. He says it multiple times and now, boom, the hour has come that the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself, to be glorified. James Montgomery Boyce, whose commentary on John is just beautiful, asks, what was the significance of the Greeks? Clearly, they were a sign that the turning point had come as a result of which salvation would now be offered to Greeks as well as to Jews. Indeed, it would be the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel to the entire world. So Saul to Paul would be the vessel But right here in God's grand and divine timeline, this is when it becomes beautifully clear to all those who have eyes to see. Even the Greeks are coming to Jesus, despite all of the efforts of Israel to keep the pagans out, right? And the shock was always for Israel. You mean it's not all about us? Isn't that what happened? Seriously? Isn't it all about us? That's what Cain thought. And what did he bring? Self-prescribed worship. We say it all the time. Maybe I say it maybe too much, but how much self-prescribed worship is the church that's being born in this text is now offering to the Lord? Right. That's central to this issue. You have to ask. What does all this mean for Paul's beloved Israel? The Lord has said, I'm going to not one stone will be left upon another. And if you've studied the details of that, it's horrible what happened in Jerusalem. He's got to be asking, or you would think he would be asking, what about Israel? Has God turned his back on them? Those whom Paul describes in this wondrous way. So I'm going to take you to Romans 9, and please put your neck brace on so you don't get whiplash, but Romans 9, 4 through 5. And look at the way Paul starts this section of scripture that throws so many people off guard Romans 9 4 through 5 when we say what about Israel and this kind of compounds the problem initially he says they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. And we know that now. it was Jesus. And then his exaltation God, who God who is God over all, blessed forever. amen. right? You kind of see what Paul's saying in, in our language it would be, you know god's got this and i'm going to show you how he's got it but you have to ask how do you harmonize this with passages like john 6:39 and this is the will this is john 6:39 and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that he has given me there's a permanence there right think of israel but to raise it up on the last day and then you try to harmonize it with John 12:32 and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself and then look at John 12:39 through 40 shocking to harmonize these right his beloved israel his elect nation And this is what is said of this nation at this particular time. John 12, 39 through 40. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. You see the responsibility of Israel there? If you think God is just this sovereign God and he operates outside of us without working through us or that we can rule over God, do you see how even in God's sovereign election that these people are absolutely responsible. what they have done because they did every bit of it out of their own will and desires and God poured his wrath out upon them and here's where I would say so many in their eschatology about Israel remain they are gone in God's plan they're gone just look at the text right and, and I will argue in this discussion that Paul is saying, don't you dare think that. God's thoughts and your thoughts are not the same. He is so far beyond us in what he's doing with Israel, you just can't believe it, right? Sounds like musical chairs upstairs. And then Matthew 15, 12 through 14, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. And then the most fearful words you can ever imagine being said of you. Jesus says, let them alone they are blind guides and if the blind lead the blind both will fall into a pit now there's a lesson for being very careful about whom you follow and whom you trust to shepherd over your soul but the point is at this point Man, it looks like Israel is toast. When you step back and you look at this epistle, I, I want to just draw a few things. And again, this is just more about looking at the possible intention of Paul's writing. And think about this set stone. But there are three different times in the first two chapters that Paul says specifically to the Jew first. He keeps saying that over and over and over again. And you've got to ask yourself, why does he keep saying that? Because he's writing to the church in Rome, which is a Gentile church. And if you look at the map, they're a long ways away. Obviously, Rome had many Jews in it. But as far as distance from Jerusalem, it was like impossible to think about going, right? But he keeps saying this to the Jew first and then the Gentile, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And then when you get into Romans 9, 10, and 11 you will see that he'll use the term Israel 10 times in a variety of different ways, mostly to do with God's long work of redemption. And he puts Israel right at the middle of it, right? And just reading through the book, I kind of captured... Uh, all in some way connected to Israel's rejection of the salvation of the Lord, not because of their privileged place, because we just read how privileged they were, right? Nor was it the word of God that failed. We see that in Romans nine six. Nor was it the inability of God to save them. You see that in Romans nine twenty seven and ten twenty one. But it was in order that God's purpose, Paul says specifically, of election might continue to save for himself a remnant from Israel and then from the Gentiles. So now you're beginning to see Paul's working through God's history of redemptive work, right? Over the sweep of humanity. The, the, those that were prior to Israel, then Israel, now the Gentiles, which is the time he's speaking into. And then at the end of this age, as he makes supremely clear in Romans 9, 10, 11, In order to exalt supremely the only Supreme One, the Deliverer from Zion, we will find that yet to come is that all Israel of that day will be saved. To the absolute glory of the Lord. Because as undeserving as we are to be saved, you could flirt in your mind with if there were ever a people who don't deserve to be saved, it would be Israel. And I think it's part of that thinking that Paul is saying, don't think that. You have to go evangelize the Jews just as much as you do all the other nations. Don't forget about them. So I want to just walk through just a few texts. I'll just read them out loud for you. Romans 1 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So I'm just kind of walking you across the span of this bridge that that Paul built, at least in my mind. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and here's one of them, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Starts right out. This gospel is powerful. I know Israel's hearts are hardened. I know the Jerusalem will be destroyed, but I know God's power will just crush that hardened heart. That's what he's saying all the way through this. Romans 3, 1 through 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of the circumcision? Much in every way, he says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with all the oracles of God. And then he goes on to repeat what he repeats in Romans 9. And then he says this in Romans 3, 29 through 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? As he turns to the Gentiles and what God's doing with the Gentiles. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? So he's saying, You Gentiles, you church in Rome, you have one God and it's the same God of the Israel that you might be wanting to just write off. Right? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? And the point here, it is by faith alone. That's one of the key doctrines of this book as we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And Paul is saying, don't think you've got this God of the Old Testament or this God of Israel and you've got this God of the New Testament and the God of the New Covenant and the God of the Gentiles and there's a separation between the two. It is the same God and this is all His beautiful work of redemption. And Israel has always been right at the center because the mercy of God has shined brightly and even brighter as you look at Israel become even darker because he's going to save them anyway despite all of that. And Paul just builds and builds and builds. Stifler made a fascinating comment about that passage It is noted that the argument on this whole subject of justification by faith, beginning with the 20th verse of Romans 3, is so far theological. It's all about what God has done. It is based on the character of God and on His unity. The Jew admitted His holiness and His oneness, but His deduction that justification came by works of the law was Utterly inconsistent with the entirety of the Old Testament, and particularly this book, this doctrine. He reached this false conclusion because he was ignorant of his own sinfulness. And then he makes this comment, which I think we should all just ponder. It cannot be said too often that a false theology finds its source in inadequate views of depravity. Remember we talked about that? And when, when man who is dead in his trespasses dominated by Satan and destined for the wrath of God, and it is only by the mercy of God that that man will ever be freed from that, says to God, I can do it on my own. And he unhinges himself from that floor of depravity. Whose glory is he stealing? Every time man elevates himself, he is attempting to steal from the glory of God. Who is the originator of the insatiable desire to steal and usurp the glory of God. Think about it. And think about how many ways we desire to exalt man and totally try to obfuscate God's glorious mercy and grace in our life. Said another way, we won't fully appreciate the grace we've been given if we don't fully understand the condition we were in when God saved us right I love these old I mean they just mind so much out yes sir
1: Essential. So he wrote down some verses and he challenged me to read these verses. He said, "Don't go to these verses with your preconceived ideas about what it should say, but let God be God speaking." Mm. So I remember going. We lived in Louisiana, and I remember going home that day, and getting my Bible. And so I'm going to see what all this is, and I read the scriptures. And brother, I've read scriptures I never read. I got Romans three. There's no good news. It's like, where did day this day. Bible come from, right? I ended up in the carpet. Mm. My hmm But it showed me the fear of God. Mm-hmm. And then the question was why did you love me? Mm-hmm. Why would you say a person like me? It made me tremble. And then the sovereignty
0: yep. and, and then you read John when he says, We love him because he first loved us. And that is the pure mercy of God. And that is just oozing through Paul's heart to, these, to this church in Rome. Because who is the most likely candidate to crush Jerusalem? Who are they waging war against? Rome. You see how intertwined this is? So Paul, if you kind of work your way through... He continues to build on the, 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 the just shall live by faith. And then you get to Romans 4, 7, and into 8. And his transition from Romans 4 through 7, which is this, exactly what Ryan was just talking about, the utter sinfulness of man. And even the saved saint, sinner, has still got that old man right there in his face. We know it. We'll have him staring at us in the face today. Right? The flesh. And Paul gives us that whole section to help us deal with the reality of the flesh, the sin that remains there, its constant war against us, and yet that God's grace is so much more powerful in the end because it's going to conquer all that we battle. And he does call us to that battle, that spiritual battle, right? But his transition from chapter 7 into chapter 8, is Romans seven twenty four through 25. Wretched man that I am. There it is, Ryan. <laughs> Who will deliver me from the body of death? There's that strapped, remember we talked about that? The Roman consequence for clear-cut murder was to strap that dead body to the murderer's face until the disease killed them. That's what Paul's talking about. And he's saying spiritually, (laughs) right? He's right here. From this body of death is a question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve, this is very important, the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I continue to serve the law of sin. It's still there. It's still raging. But then you go to Romans 1, eight, one through four in this transition. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I thought, Paul, you just said I'm going to continue to struggle with sin. How can I not have any condemnation? And he's pointing us to justification by faith. What was it about Abraham that we hang on in terms of this precious doctrine? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. It was from outside of him, and there's the key, because it isn't coming from in here. That's the point. This is a central doctrine in this entire epistle, and it is bathed in the truth that God is gloriously sovereign and merciful in all of that, to do that, for us because had he left us alone we would be the most worshipful bunch of people over the entire course of humanity and not one second of it would be worshiping the true God where all the false religions come from and Paul is just driving that into this precious church in Rome and you have to ask why beside the fact that he just wanted to come and be with them and bless them. So Paul says, so then I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin to Romans one or eight, one through four. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the very important thing for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember the two things that came into humanity coming out of the garden. Sin and death. Our constant reminders of the fall of humanity and our desperate need for God and the merciful God who has reached back into this humanity to save that's what Paul is just driving into these folks. But he's very much bringing in his Jewish knowledge of the law and how they were treating the law. He is basically teaching them how to evangelize the Jews <laughs> because they were being saved, according to them, by the law. And he's saying there's another law. It's the law of the spirit of Life that sets you free, which was everything Jesus talked about. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, Jesus's, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And you just have to wonder about the three years in the desert and if this wasn't precisely what the Lord Himself taught Paul about His Jewish people. Let me, let me read this last passage. And then we'll come back next week and pick things up. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Just a monumental passage. And, and um, let me just read it. Because I really have to read these Jeremiah passages for it to make sense. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. So you see this theme continues. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, see the progressive nature of that, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, and this is where Paul has to be thinking about his beloved Israel, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, are re- you have received the spirit of, precious, intimate words, adoption as sons. And the Jew would be sitting there going, wait a minute. You're stealing from us. God is our father. He said so. We are the adopted people. He said so. What do you mean the Gentiles are right in here, right? And the Gentiles are probably thinking, the Jews are out, we're in. And then this, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, all of us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And Paul just has to be thinking about his Israel. So let me just read Jeremiah 31 verses 9 and then 31 through 34. And you have to imagine these passages are just welling up in Paul's heart because this is his beloved Israel to whom Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God. With weeping they shall come. Jeremiah 31, 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. You see it? And you have to be asking, as many did, the brilliant minds like Jonathan Edwards said, nope, God evidently has forsaken all of those promises. Brilliant man, brilliant theologian, but believed there was no hope for Israel. (laughs) And Paul's got to be thinking about this when he's talking about the adoption and the father, right? For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Undeniable. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach. That's a shot right at the rabbis, the Sauls, because they were the teachers. Everybody else followed them, and as Jesus said, right into the pit right and, and Jeremiah is saying on behalf of God that I'm going to put my spirit in you right verse 34 and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And then out of Paul comes the most glorious passage we all know. When he's thinking about all this history, all this horrendous history and the current state of Israel, and where they're headed. And by the way, where they've been the last 2,000 years. And out comes this passage from the Holy Spirit. And you all know it well, but keep it in the context of the flow of what, where Paul is in his mind. With Israel, because this is what launches him right into Romans 9. He says in Romans eight twenty seven through 30, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also, there it is, justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what do you think Paul's doing? Because by the time he gets to Romans 9, you just hear his heart. Break for his people Israel. In Romans 10, I would forsake my own salvation if Israel could be saved. He's broken over his people Israel. But these passages were a salve to his soul because it allows him to run to the same place every one of us can run to the sovereign, glorious, perfect work of God who is just in everything he does. And we can leave all of our concerns about our lost loved ones, about our children, at the foot of a sovereign, merciful God. Because that's what Paul's doing with his people Israel. But he's communicating to Rome saying, don't you forget about Israel.